So I said I'd talk about something this week, and here we are. One of the things at the end of the previous episode was they went, you know, the Defiant leaves. It's like the last shot of the entire episode. The Defiant leaves, meets up with a fleet, and basically turned around. The idea here that a lot of people, myself and my mother included, got was, okay, so they are immediately turning around to then retake Deep Space Nine. Seems kind of wasteful, but is pretty typical for Star Trek. After all, we haven't seen string continuity in Star Trek before. Not really. Usually, the only episodes that are string continuity, and even this is kind of a technically, is two-parters where an episode will lead immediately into the next episode, like string continuity works, right? So me and my friends and my mom, we all anticipated that this Dominion War arc was going to be two episodes long. I'm just curious how many of you presumed the same thing, that it would be back to business as usual as of basically the next episode after this one. This is also probably when Deep Space Nine hit a really good mark for me. Now, granted, I've been watching Babylon 5 as well, but this was the first... I mean, I've said this already. This is the first time Star Trek hit string continuity, and I never realized before how much I wanted that until I saw them actually do it. Now, I've brought up a few quotes, because I want to talk about this here. This is usually referred to as the Dominion War arc. Um, I have some quotes. I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, Majel Barrett was actually pretty negative about this. Uh, the Dominion War, of course, even though the string continuity only lasts seven episodes, the actual Dominion War will last two seasons. All of season six and all of season seven are a state of open war or total war, depending on how you want to define that, between the Federation and the Dominion. So, Majel Barrett uh, says that Star Trek was all based on the fact that Gene had been very specific about not wanting Star Trek to be a show about intergalactic wars, interspecies wars. He didn't want it to be humans fighting other species. And Majel Barrett uh, mentioned this. This was in the Star Trek Communicator, which I don't have a physical copy of, unfortunately. But uh, as I've mentioned many, many times, there was a lot of open discussion about this kind of stuff in the AOL chats and whatnot. And I happened to find an old archive uh, this is December 6, 2003. This is an interview with Ronald D. Moore and the IGN Film Force. Now, I want to share this with you, if you will forgive me. He talks about a lot of things here. He talks about you know, his, his working with Brandon Braga and how he decided to go with Deep Space Nine instead of Voyager when TNG was wrapping up, blah, 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 blah. But he gets to the part, <sighs> direct quote, I remember when we got into the Dominion War, Rick... Rick Berman, was adamant at first that the war would only take three or four episodes in the most. And we just said, sure, we lied. We knew that once we got the ball rolling, we'd never be able to wrap it up in three or four episodes. There was just this trickery. And then as the war went on, Rick would weigh in periodically about how heroic the characters are, or why is this one so depressing? This one's too violent. And we're like, it's a freaking war. What do you mean it's too violent? Uh, paraphrased, of course. They also, <laughs> there's something about it's, a, it's only a paper moon, which I'll actually... I'm going to leave that quote for later because it's more relevant there. But uh, he talks about how basically Rick... Uh, here it is, here it is. Um, Once Voyager was on the air, Moore said there was a very clear distaste for Deep Space Nine amongst Paramount and Rick Berman. Now this goes from what I've heard and read for years at this point. Uh, he says DS9 staff even wanted the show to continue beyond Season 7. Now, we now, 
as of now, you know, uh, this would be 16 years later, know that this is true. And they actually had story plans for a season eight. We see some of this in What You Leave Behind, uh, or What You Left Behind, or, you know, the, the special that just came out last year. Um, but the studio was adamant about giving Voyager a solo run for its last two seasons, despite having never given DS9 the opportunity. And I quote, I don't think Paramount ever loved it. I know Rick didn't love it. It was just the bastard stepchild of the franchise. And then he talks about a few other things I'm not going to relate you to. That's TNG-related stuff. Now, this is all very amusing to me in its own horrible way, because the next thing I want to share with you, if you'll forgive me, is a quote from Rick Berman. Of the somewhat controversial decision to have the show... This is from The Companion, which I don't have a physical copy of at the moment. Um, this is of the somewhat controversial decision to have the show go semi-serialized. Rick Berman says, and I quote, I think the potential for serialization or near-serialization of the show was always there. When they say serialization, they're referring to what I call string continuity, by the way. There's actually a distinction between the two, but let's just, that's what they mean. If you're on a spaceship, as in Voyager, Next Generation, or original series, you have your family of people who go off and meet aliens every week. But Deep Space Nine was conceived as a stationary show. It took place on a space station. We found ourselves developing dozens of ancillary characters, secondary characters, recurring characters, and because it remained there, those characters kept coming back. So once you have the tapestry of all these different characters and you had all these different stories that were kind of weaving in and out, I think it sort of begged for more of a serialized format. And the fact that the Dominion War became such a major part of the last two seasons really contributed to the feeling of serialization. Now, more than once in the past, I have basically called bull on Rick Berman. This, to me, sounds like him spin-doctoring it, because every other source, including the one I just quoted from 2003, mentioned how he was pretty adamantly against this whole thing. This is also interesting because in that exact same companion, there's a quote from Moore, which I'm not going to read word for word for you because I didn't write it down, uh, that had Moore commenting on how incredibly difficult and, and how much of a costly experience it was doing the serialization. Not in a bad way, mind you. Just mentioning how the show, the studio, the infrastructure, the connections between the writers and the, act and the directors and the entire production staff wasn't set up for doing this kind of string continuity. And I'm going to use a direct quote here. It was apparently very exhilarating to work on this. So, yeah, I, I'm going to call Bull and Rick Berman being like, of course, but then again, Berman likes to be the guy who claims credit for Deep Space Nine in general, so. The beginning of this episode is dedicated to the memory of Brandon Tartikoff. Now, I know I've mentioned him before, at least when it comes to the films. Brandon Tartikoff, I, I'm, I'm almost positive I brought him up in early season one of TNG as well. He was one of the Paramount execs who helped to put uh, both financial and political sway behind Star Trek. He was one of the pushers who helped the show to happen, he helped TNG to exist, helped Deep Space Nine to exist, and helped push several of the films. He was a big pusher, and in many ways, I would actually say he probably deserves more credit than Rick Berman does for allowing Star Trek to expand as it did. And remember, for as much as I despise Rick Berman, I will always give the man credit for being one of the executive producers who pushed Star Trek. Uh, I was actually asked directly uh, once about, you know, do I think Rick Berman believed in Star Trek, or do I think he thought it was going to be a good vehicle to make money and pursue his career? And I've always thought it's the second, that he never really, like, believed in the show. There was no creative passion or whatever, but that he saw the potential for it. And while that does make him kind of a scumbag, it also means that that scumbag 
helped to bring us modern Star Trek, for good and bad. So, so with all that credit I'm willing to give Berman, I'm willing to give even more to Tartikoff. It's a damn shame that we lost him. The episode starts with a shot of them literally just limping away, quite literally dragging some of the ships via tractors in order to get away. Uh, it then cuts to uh, a scene with Bashir. I find it amusing that Bashir apparently shows off his genetic enhancements, whereas Alexander Siddig hated it. Eventually he would come to grow more comfortable with the genetic engineering in an episode that will be happening later this season. But for now you can kind of see he kind of phones in his performance anytime he's act, asked to, and I quote, act like Data. Worf, of course, is fretting about the wedding. Ha, ha, ha. And, I mean, that makes sense, right? Now, what's funny about this is this was done from an out-of-character perspective to remind the viewers that the wedding is coming. But from an in-character perspective, it makes even more sense because they're in a war. You need something to think about when you're in a war. Something to focus on other than we're losing. So you, I can see him kind of fidgeting, fretting about little details of the wedding. Then we find out that only 14 out of 112 Federation ships survived the Seventh Fleet catastrophe. 14 out of 112. Now, I mentioned the numbers thing last episode, so I'm not going to reiterate that point. But I'm going to iterate how this intro very efficiently and brutally shows the Feds are losing. First we have the visual presentation. Then we have the personal presentation. Then we have the numbers. In basically every way human beings perceive information, we are shown things are bad. This is, of course, also a wonderful contrast to how things are going back on Deep Space Nine, where Kira is getting a drink for free at Quark's. I'll get that in a second, though. So Kira pushes for security privileges, and uh, there's this nice bit where Wayun says, ah, you know... Is is Odo aware of how hard I'm working to to please him? Please tell him. No, no, no. I I don't want to bother him myself. That would be inappropriate. I I can't let Senbai know, but he's noticing me, right? Now I'm making fun, but as ever, Combs manages a very tight wire with being just pathetic enough while being absolutely terrifying in the process. Wayun is. <laughs> He is a fascinating character, not just because of Jeffrey Combs. He grovels at the at someone who is a friend of Odo. But when Damara shows up, Wayun just barks, out. Don't look at him, look at me. I am telling you to get out. And Dukat has to apologize, basically, for Damar, while Wayun is like, this is not good. So this is the second time, if you're paying attention, that Wayun has cracked the whip. Not the last, by the way. We see that Wayun is already a better leader in many ways. That's the wrong word. A better administrator than Dukat. This is the sad reality. Wayun is actually pretty good at his job. Not the sniveling, not the politicking. The actual running of the Empire. He's the Ignis of the crew. To put it into another term, you remember how I mentioned that Worf was a very good first officer? Because you need someone to deal with the day-to-day -day and to deal with the crew. That kind of person, that, a major domo, effectively, is invaluable to any large-scale organization. 
whether it's political, military, economic, you know, private, doesn't matter. Having a good major domo is an invaluable asset. And Wei Yun is a damned good major domo. He also shows in this episode the beginnings of that, and I'll be pointing it out as we go forward as well. He already recognizes the need to bring that wormhole back open. He understands that even though they are absolutely winning every engagement with the Federation, that they have not won. Ducat is like, yeah, it's fine. Wayun is like, no, we need to get the, that wormhole open immediately because Wayun is thinking about tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Ducat is just basking in the moment. This is most shown when Ducat tries to hit on Kira. Now, he's tried to push toward romantic stuff with her in the past. What's interesting is he's always done so from a perspective of more reasonability. Now, that's probably at least partially because the writers actually legitimately wanted Ducat and Kira to get together, and it was Nana Visitor who put their foot down on that one. But you'll notice the way he acts here is literally different. He comes across as more sleazy, and I'm pretty sure that was a, a deliberate intent by the director. Uh, the thing I want to point out, though, is he has... I mean, okay... What he does is, is incredibly wrong. Trying to use his position of power to force himself sexually on someone is horrible, regardless of genders involved. That's just messed up. And I don't want to sound like I'm excusing that, because I'm not. But what I find interesting is Ducat, completely regardless of that, has a valid point. When he blocks her from leaving, he says, he, he cuts to the core of the issue. It's not about, you know, this specific fight or the fact that I'm Ducat or anything. I mean, they, the two of them have literally fought side by side more than once. No, he says, you feel I've betrayed you. And she says, yes! And I love that because that does cut to the point of it. Ducat was, in many ways, one of the good guys. Not in terms of being a good person, but because that was the side he was on. And Kira had gotten to the point where she had ex accepted that he was on the good guy's side. And then he flipped. Now, I've discussed this already in the specifics of it, and the writer's reasons for it, blah, 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 blah. But the hard reality is, he hits the, to the, to, straight to the core of that point. And when he defends himself, I feel there's some legitimacy in his argument. The catch is, of course, she, of all people, is the, one of the ones who is going to be least receptive to that, because the thrust of his argument is, Cardassia was screwed. We were a third-rate power, had nothing left, we were on the edge of the abyss, we had to have something to help us survive and grow stronger. Now, do you think that kind of argument is going to work with a Bajoran who lived through the occupation? And you can see the flaw in the argument. This is why I say he's not a good guy. He was simply on the good guy's side. Because even when he has a valid point, his general thought process is, well, villainous wrong, to put it into such terminology. <sighs> As always, love to hear your guys' thoughts on Ducat. He's a fascinating character to talk about, that's for certain. So, <clears throat> let's see here. William cracks the whip. Odo. <laughs> Kira mentions how she trusts William more than Ducat. You remember how I mentioned the thing with Gamor, Ducat, and Weiyun, and Kira was present for that. So in this scene, Kira mentions she trusts Weiyun more than Ducat. Now, at the end of this episode, Odo goes and requests the reinstatement of his 
security, so he has something to do. And then Wei Yun says, now that I've done that for you, which is brilliant, by the way. Notice Wei Yun acquiesces instantly and without hesitation, but then, now that I've done that for you, now that I've offered you something, without asking for anything in return, without hesitating or question, maybe you could do something for me? This is brilliant manipulation by Wei Yun. It's the only thing he could do to something like Odo, because he is still programmed to worship Odo. But he can still work around that. A little bit, because Odo being on the council, as Kira points out, is going to, well, verify. It's going to, um, that's not the word, uh, legitimize the Dominion occupation by having Odo on the council along with Dukat and Wei Yun. And, uh, <laughs> She's right, because she mentions how this doesn't feel like a victory. This is the problem, and this will be part of Kira's story arc going forward. She has no idea the enemy she's facing. Kira can take on individuals, and she can fight a guerrilla war. She's excellent at both. What she's doing right now is playing at politics. She is not excellent at that. In fact, she is an absolute amateur at that. And Weyun is not, and the Dominion are not. So that's why she says at the end, I feel like this feels like a loss. Because it is. Because she has lost this round. And she's starting to recognize that. So rewinding a little bit, there's a nice little human moment where... Oh! Yeah, no. Where Quark is trying to talk things over with Odo and Kira. Now, Quark comes in and, hey, I'm making tons of money. And they're like, okay, that's nice. But what I love about it is Quark has the right perspective there. It is a pragmatic perspective, but it is still correct. I don't care about just profits. And I think by this point we can say officially, Quark really has grown. He has a conscience. He has a sense of ethics. He is a decent person in a way that Dukat is not, to put it simply. Although there has been arguments that Dukat might have pulled a Quark if Dukat had been embraced the way Quark has, but that's neither here nor there. So he says, look... Look around you. I don't see ghetto fences, or starving children, or people being beaten. As far as occupations go, this is not bad. And I find that interesting because Cork, bring, Cork mentions the human, the microscopic perspective of why this occupation is a gentle occupation. And it is Oda who points out the macroscopic perspective. He flat out lays out everything I've already told you about how the Dominion is adamant about maintaining their treaty with the Bajorans, because that gets them nothing but brownie points in the political arena of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. So, <laughs> Cisco and Joseph have a chat. It's actually one of the last times we see Joseph on the show. Not the last, but one of the last. And... <laughs> It's, it's, it's just a really human scene. I don't actually have a lot to say about it. But I think the best part is when you know, his father asks, are, are things as bad as they say on the news? And Cisco says, no, they're probably worse. The really interesting thing is, remember, at this point they've been at war for about three months. And they're facing loss, as in... Um, to put it into such terminology, the Dominion's war score is quite high. <laughs> and the Federation is just losing every encounter. Yeah, the Federation is facing either trying, trying to peace out, or, what is more likely, 
acquiescing to all demands. Yay. Notice this is the first episode of the six, by the way, and they're already doing this badly. So then, to bring some levity into the episode, we cut to the Jem'Hadar ship. Oh, wait. At 17 minutes and 46 seconds, uh, Barry Jenner. I hope I'm saying that name right. Hang on, let me double check that because I always have trouble with names. Let me look at the guest star list here. Barry Jenner. I, I, yep, looks like I had it right. He shows up on the show. He plays Admiral Ross. Now, I have talked for years long before I ever even started this show, about how admirals and commodores and, and high captains and all that, they all suck in Star Trek, right? I've even came up with a term for it, the obstinate bureaucrat. And there have been exceptions to that, to be clear. But usually, if an admiral showed up, you had about a 9 out of 10 chance that they were there to be an obstinate bureaucrat, or outright a villain. Ross is the really big exception to that. Ross is awesome. And I hate to oversell that because we've just seen him for the first time. But you notice how the man has an affability and a presence to him at the same time. He's warm, but he's also firm. And that's a good combination to have there. And it's no wonder they kept bringing him back. As I mentioned last time, from now on, they're going to be a lot heavier on the recurring elements of Deep Space Nine. So, yeah, Ross is now a recurring character, and that's awesome. So then they get on the Jem'Hadar ship. And we get to see, this is actually not our first look at the Jem'Hadar ships, really, but it's our first really in-depth look. And there's a very human, very lovely conversation where they talk about chairs, replicators, view screens, and infirmary. And it's just, I don't have anything to add to it. It's just a very well-written, very well-acted scene, as they all list their complaints about this unpleasant military ship they're on. Even worse than the Defiant, if you can believe that. And then, of course, it ends with, I ah, wouldn't mind having a chair or a view screen, or a sandwich. <laughs> it's a good human moment, which I, I admit is funny because only one of the people involved in that is actually human. We've got a genetically engineered human, a Ferengi, and a Trill, but anyways. So there's this bit, uh, I'm looking at my notes here. I think I've actually covered most of the stuff I want to talk about, with two exceptions. Um, Kira says of Odo, what good is power if you refuse to use it? I like that. It's a good quote. I've often said that, and I, you can quote me on this, power exists to help others. Now, obviously that's not going to be 100% true, but I stand by the sentiment. Uh, power is, after all, merely the ability to do. That's what power literally is, and that can be expressed in many different ways. So I like the idea that Kira is the one who pushes Odo into the events that I actually already referenced earlier. Uh, in ignorance, but still. But I also want to talk about, <laughs> speaking of power, Ducat has a quote, even among servants, one must be in charge. And Wayun is just, you know, <laughs> you know Ducat. That's the kind of observation I would expect from you. Interesting, but somehow petty. Yeah. <laughs> so, final thoughts. Ketracel White. I could be mistaken, but if I'm not mistaken, they never address the possibility of taking control of the white supply as a stratagem. Now, you might argue whether or not that would even be feasible or worth pursuing, 
but you'd think they'd at least bring up the possibility. You can't tell me the Federation and all their scientists wouldn't be able to at least replicate some equivalent of Ketracel White, some kind of stopgap, while at the same time doing everything they can to either capture or destroy all the Dominion's supply of Ketracel White. Programming and, and founder worship aside, there's no white, that's the end of the Dominion's military, one way or the other. But if the Federation has the white, think about it. I just thought that was interesting to consider as they go to destroy this uh, outpost. Now, I wanted to mention one other thing about that really quick. I think one of the benefits of the Jem'Hadar bridge, and it's a shame they'll only ever use this basically in this episode, is the idea of it being a submarine. I mean that. Like, on another ship, you, you can see what's happening, and it feels more like the deck of a ship. But on the bridge of a Jem'Hadar ship, it feels more like a, the cramped cabins of a submarine. You, you literally can't see what's going on, and everyone's just like, oh, God, what do we do? And everyone's shouting things at each other, and we only find out what's happening through what they're saying to each other, and the people on the con, the people on the radar, the people on the sensors, right? It's just an interesting thing that, unfortunately, they never really do anything with after this. So they... They're going to be 17 years out. Yay. And uh, I remember thinking something. If all it cost was one ship and one crew to take out an entire Ketracel White facility, then to be perfectly blunt, that is a very fair trade, strategically speaking. Not that I want them to die, it's just, I mean, you know. <laughs> but then the episode ends and the, the ship is just limping off. And I'll never forget when I first saw this, I was like, Wait, that's it? Because what happened was usually you get into this pattern, especially in late TNG, which I was already kind of already in the mindset of at this point, obviously, um, where you expect, you're just waiting for the episode to wrap up. Sometimes episodes would wrap up in the last five minutes. It, it got ridiculous in some things, especially season seven TNG. So you're just expecting the episode to wrap up, and oh, they got away. And then they mentioned they're limping away, and then the credits show, I'm like, wait, what? I was still waiting for the wrap up. It took a few more minutes and discussions with my mom before we realized the truth that there was going to be another episode following this, that it was going to be a three-parter, effectively, not a two-parter, which, again, was just unheard of. It's really sad, actually, in hindsight, that we were so flummoxed by the idea of string continuity in Star Trek that we were just like, what? You can kind of see why this might have been a bit of an attention grabber. It's a shame the ratings didn't really back that up, but... Either way, I will be seeing you guys next time.